Hello and welcome to the What If Movie Podcast, the movie podcast that simply asks, what if? I am Josh, I am an educator, a writer, and occasionally a Sith Lord. I am Bryce, I'm a learner, a writer, and occasionally I think of something clever to introduce myself as. And I'm Hannah, Bryce's wife and Josh's friend. I'm also Hannah's husband. Oh, oh, thanks. That was that needed clarification. I just wanted to make sure. Today on the What If Movie Podcast, we're going to be asking the question, what if The Breakfast Club were made today? And just as a brief synopsis uh, of The Breakfast Club, it's a 1985 cult classic, kind of classic 80s movie in which uh, five students, a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal uh, are sentenced to detention for an entire day one Saturday. And these are all very different people, but as they go through some very 80s hijinks and kind of expose their lives to one another, they emerge changed and better for the experience. That's right. I hope everyone listening has seen this movie. It's such a classic. I honestly don't remember the first time I've seen this movie because I feel like it's always been in my life. Um, and honestly, I probably saw it for the first time at way too young an age. I mean, there's some language and some some pretty heavy topics, but it's just kind of one of those things that's on TV a lot. Yeah, I don't yeah know it is rated R. I guess we should include yes, that. Yes. With an R rating. Yeah, this for me, so I've always known this movie as a thing in my mind. Like I've known, oh yeah, this is a classic 80s movie. I'm not sure the first time I saw it, but it was probably embarrassingly recently. Like I probably saw it with you for the first time. Probably. Um, It's one of those I've probably seen scenes from it before or people had referenced it and I didn't realize they were referencing it. So my journey of watching it the first time was probably a lot of the oh, that's the reference uh, sort of thing. Um, And so, yeah, for me, the first time watching this movie is probably in the past four or five years. And I think for me, it was difficult to sort out the first time I watched it. And it still kind of is as far as like when I finish watching the movie, it's like, okay, yeah, that's a good movie. And that's that's a classic movie. I struggle to articulate why necessarily and sometimes i do wonder if this is a movie that's a that's a classic because it's a classic um i'm not sure maybe that's something that our conversation will reveal a little bit obviously that's not our uh real focus Mm -hmm. right now but i think you guys will help me with that perhaps I saw this movie once before I rewatched it yesterday, but the first time I saw it was so long ago. I was in high school. It was like at least 10 years ago now. And as a high school student, I'm pretty sure I could relate for the most part to the students' plights against each other and their uh, and their parents to varying degrees. But what really interested me now rewatching it is I'm a teacher now. I'm an adult. I'm a parent. Mm. And it was really uh, watching it for the first time yesterday as someone, I mean, who's very very different than who I was a decade ago. And so because of that, I found that it was a lot harder for me to relate to the students as an adult. Yeah, I know that as a teenager, life can suck and your emotions are dialed to 11 all of the time. And the most minute detail can completely recontextualize your very existence in the world. Uh, And to an adult, I mean, it may seem like, you know, a student or a teenager is overreacting, and they probably are. I think if it's real to the teenager in the moment, uh, as an educator, I mean, I can't tell the person that it doesn't matter because Mm -hmm. high school isn't only a blip on the radar of life. Right. It is life. 
Right. And so that's not going to help anything. It's going to hurt, right? It's going to undercut their thoughts, their feelings, their perspectives. It's going to dismiss them as an individual. So as an educator and as a parent, I mean, I hope that I'm helping them develop these skills and their talents that they have to overcome that sense of being overwhelmed and overpowered. And because I know now, as an adult, that you'll get over it and you won't turn into your parents if you don't want to. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, I have that perspective now, but you can't teach it. It can't be something that you, you can learn per se. You just have to kind of experience it for yourself. And I just hope that I could kind of foster a positive experience for them. So it was it was really interesting watching this movie under that lens this time. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I really was rattled by that assistant principal. Mm. Yeah, know? I was going to ask, as an educator 32 or so years after this movie came out, how often would you say you lock students in a filing room and threaten to beat them? Well, personally, none. <laughs> um, some, some of that new age teaching. Yeah, you know, but the thing is, though, I have seen real teachers with similar attitudes as that assistant mm. principal of, mm. oh, today's current crop of students are the worst than any other class ever. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what mm -hmm. those ideas I have seen in the school system. And so I guess in a sense, I kind of feel like the young buck teacher who thinks he can make a difference and really show these students a thing or two about learning. But I also think that if I ever lose that feeling, then I hope that I know to just quit teaching because, you know, then it's kind of like the crux of no country for old men. You know, you're not really in that time anymore and you should just kind mm -hmm. of go away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think this will be kind of a fun topic because there's a lot of different ways we can go with this. You know, the question again is what if The Breakfast Club were made today? And you can, I guess, kind of take that a couple of ways. I suppose you could say, um, what if the original Breakfast Club was never made in the first place and we're making it today for the first time? Or you could say, you know, what if we tried to do a remake today having the existing movie there? Um, maybe the answers to those questions are the same. I don't know. But I think, that, you know, you can kind of look at it from those ways um and so that's kind of what i just i think that's an interesting question to take a movie that it's not that old let's mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the 80s were not that long ago but i think the way we make movies now is so different and there's something about the movie that might be hard to to recapture just because it's kind of this perfect time you know for this kind of yeah. movie um, but i think it's it's a really interesting question um so. well it's an interesting question right now too because we're going through such a, a spate of 80s nostalgia mm -hmm. you know especially with uh, Stranger Things and some other things that are happening right now um, we're really kind of thick with recapturing or at least gesturing to some of the the 80s and some of the the tropes in there and so I think it's I think it's a timely question yeah I I hope so we'll see so my first question you know the the movie starts with that song right don't you forget about me mm -hmm. right okay so it's just iconic like the movie and that song are so tied together you cannot break them apart so i think my first question for you guys and maybe we don't know what would the song be that you tie to the Ooh. new version wow i did not think about that at all um, oh and I, i'm i'm so ill as you know like my music and pop culture knowledge is so yeah. so thin 
Um, why am I even on this podcast? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I feel so ill-equipped to answer this question because it, it's a big question. Somehow. Maybe it doesn't have to be, but I think it's just so interesting that if you sing that song anywhere, everyone's going to know what it's from. Uh, do you know, is that song a big deal outside of the context of this movie? I don't know. I have no idea. I think it's kind of an interesting thing to think about, you know, what current song or song within the last few years captures that same kind of teenage angst and... Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly don't know that there is one. I feel like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know how much angst is in the radio play of today now. It's right. you know, the music landscape of your contemporary pop culture music is completely different than what it was. Definitely. Yeah, when I, we were. I think you might be a little more likely to have kind of one of the, the great party anthem songs sure. of today. I feel like those are maybe more, more widespread and influential than kind of the the 80s angst which is just throughout this movie there's that 80s angst definitely i don't know that i have a good answer for that question what the song would be but it's something to ponder if we were remaking the movie they would probably do something where at the very beginning one of the kids is walking to detention and they've got their phone open and their headphones on and they're like listening to it and you see the yeah. album cover of like this is from the yep. breakfast club oh yeah album. the breakfast club soundtrack yeah and, and that's why i think the the questions of remake making this movie today without the original existing and remaking it really are completely different, different questions because you know if they remade it like you'd have to nod right there'd be so many gestures to the original and choices made i think deliberately in contrast to the original yeah um but yeah this i feel like this is such an important question and i I don't know how to answer i don't have a good answer and i think josh is right that kind of the popular music of today just has such a different feel and a different vibe that it'd be hard to pick one out that really captures the the mood of the movie yeah i'm not even sure what artist it would be because this simple minds right the artist of don't you forget about me Mm -hmm. don't you parentheses forget Forget about about me me. yeah let's keep ruminating on that one under that a little My initial thoughts are difficult. I actually had a harder time with this question than I thought I would, mostly because I think these categories of people still hold up, right? I mean, like this basic stereotype of these different types of high schoolers carries across time and space in its own way. Um, So you've got your your princess, which I guess maybe today would be your basic bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Ugg boots and leggings. And I guess your basket case could maybe be a uh, little nod to to mental health issues issues that we are drawing attention to nowadays which is is great we Mm -hmm. definitely need to do that and especially in high school when anxiety and depression are such a big deal for kids and I think we just don't we don't talk about that a lot I think there's some room there to really run with with some of that and and bring in some of those darker topics Mm -hmm. that the original movie has in kind of a new way I guess your criminal can be kind of the same right the weed smoking bad boy I suppose that still exists. Yeah, I don't think there's quite maybe the the gasp of weed well, smoking <laughs> as some of the, the characters had. Maybe so. But I think that scene in the movie is just so, so iconic mm-hmm. where they're all, you know, getting high together and kind of, you know, its own weird way brings them together the most. And so you can, I think you still need that. You kind of need that loosening up. Yep. Not, not condoning drug use here. If I mean, you're listening, Nancy Reagan. Right. I'm sorry. We're, we don't we don't do drugs. And I think your jock still exists, your athlete. Well, especially cuz so one of the concerns for the athlete, I forget the character's actual name. Andy. Andy, Andy the athlete. Um, you know, one of the concerns that's identified as his dad is dropping him off is you're not going to get a, a scholarship, a college mm-hmm. scholarship if you, you know, if these 
this sort of problem continues, essentially, which does bring in that concern about paying for college, um, you know, only lightly, but I think is, again, one of those things that still resonates Definitely. Um, to high school students today. And we still kind of have that, you know, church of sports going on where, oh yeah, I mean, athletics in high school is just, it's so crucial for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Not something I personally ever understood. Maybe surprise, surprise. But I mean, that's a deal breaker for a lot of people is if a school doesn't have a strong athletics program, they're not sending their kids there. Right. But this is a this is a podcast. People can't see us. We can pretend Ooh, to be athletic. So true. You know, I think Brian the Brain probably resonates the most with me in high school, way, way, way back. Because that was that was my family too. Is the grades, and you got to maintain this GPA, and you can do better, and a B is just kind of unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so that pressure is so understandable and relatable to me. Kind of even still, I can remember that, and I think that still exists for kids big time. And so I think these, you know, these tropes, while they may not be as 80s today i mean they're just so 80s but i think all of those really translate still to today and to to kids now that just it just looks a little different yeah i think like you coming into this movie as i'm settling down for my notes i'm gonna gonna watch the movie like my first thought was oh i'm gonna i'm gonna update all these stereotypes and that's gonna be my contribution to the podcast Mm, and didn't work yeah like there, to me, they didn't scream out for updating. Like I'm sure there's adjusting to do, but I think potentially these roles are still relevant. And if the movie were made today, you might, maybe by different names, but I think you might have some of those same, the same categories, same stereotypes of people. I think some of the things that most stuck out for me, and Josh, you may be able to speak more to this, but there were some things that struck me in here that I don't know if a movie today would get away with doing or would be comfortable with doing. Uh, there is a lot of silence in this movie. Especially, it's funny, we opened up our conversation talking about the iconic song from this movie, but most of this movie is unaccompanied mm-hmm. uh, by a soundtrack. There's a lot of silence. The dialogue is, a lot of times, is very spare and has kind of what I called a theatrical naivete to it. Like, a lot of the dialogue, frankly, does not sound like super natural. People uh, sitting around and talking might sound if you were attempting to write a script that made it sound like people naturally sitting around and talking. And I think potentially if the movie were made today, like, I was trying to imagine myself watching it, because one of the things that I always pay attention to in movies is just the dialogue, and it's something I end up having strong feelings about. I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, I, I don't know uh, if some of this would work. Like, what, what would my reaction to it be? I might feel that it was hackneyed or kind of like, oh, that character is saying that so that we get this situation. And, but I don't necessarily say that to, to criticize this movie. Like, that's one of the things I actually like about it. Like I said, there's a certain a naivete to the movie and that it's just telling the story that it wants to tell in a very particular way. And I think in, in a very 80s way. And I'm not sure if that would be acceptable to some audiences today. I'm not even sure that I would accept that from a movie today. I think it's such a small film. You know, it's almost like a play. Yeah, yeah it is. Yep. Where you just take this group of characters, you put them in a room, and you just kind of see what happens and let each one come out throughout the course of the film. And so something like that, it's very indie, right? And so I was that's one of the things I was thinking of. You know, this movie was produced in 1984, released in 1985, as Bryce said. And the original film was, I mean, essentially an indie film. It had a, a million-dollar budget. John Hughes, uh, who directed it, had only directed 16 Candles the year before it. And so we have this young, comedic writer-director who basically shoots it at one location, the school, the library takes up at least 90% of the setting. Mm-hmm. 
uh, the, all the actors are relatively unknown at that time. So it's such a small independent film that just kind of blew up. If we're looking at remaking it, do we keep that small indie feel or do we try and make it something bigger? And I think that's something that the filmmakers would have to kind of decide is what sort of approach. And I think their answer would be dictated by our first question that Hannah proposed, which was, is this a remake or is this in a world where the Breakfast Club never actually existed? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think, and I think you do get completely different answers. Definitely. And I, I think if... If The Breakfast Club never existed, the version we have, it almost makes it easier to make this movie again, you know, because I think there are really good independent films where nothing happens and you just Mm kind of have that play feeling of people together talking and there's not much of a plot, honestly. Like, no, nothing really happens. They just talk. Um, And so we do have movies like that today and there are some of my favorites, but it's hard to remake one that already exists, you know. Right. And I think indie feeling that you mentioned, Josh, is so important for this movie because there's a lot of silliness and play in this movie that I think doesn't happen if it's taking itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Or even some of the, And I don't like it's hard for me to imagine these being in a, a movie made today. Uh, things like like the whole hallway montage when they're running away from the assistant principal. I love that whole scene. I have a hard time seeing something being done in that way today. I mean, it's like Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it's very (laughs) Scooby-Doo, really. And yet, also, so little happens in it either. Like, there's not even a lot of slapstick stuff happening there. But they kind of take their time with this, just kind of one thing happening over and over. And it's just kind of a a neat scene. And it's silly Uh, as well, too, when uh, Andy is doing his right after he um, is hotboxing in the room there, kind of running around doing his athlete thing, goes back into the room and does his glass breaking scream. Like, it's really silly. It's really random. I love it. I have a hard time imagining that being in a movie today. And of course, the dance scene. Ah, the dance scene. 80s movie, we've just got a a scene that it's just a dance break. And I love it. And it'd be hard... Um, again, to do it today without that being a deliberate reference to other another film or to the 80s as a movie genre. Mm-hmm. I think this is a simple thing, but obviously we would have to establish at the very beginning of the movie that cell phones aren't allowed. <laughs> Because if you throw five kids in a library together with their cell phones, they're not going to talk. Mm-hmm. And so that ha- that would have to be part of the setup, right? That like, you just have to sit here, no electronics, no technology. And do you still hand them a piece of lined notebook paper and a pencil and have them write an essay? I mean, it, it was silly in the first movie or in the original and it'd be silly now, but it kind of, there's something quaint about it kind of. Mm-hmm. I think kind of that whole, how do you portray boredom mm-hmm. is kind of a more interesting question now and maybe josh as a high school educator you can speak to that a little bit more but i think that might be challenging just because there are some i don't some tropes of boredom things that you do when you don't have anything else to do you know paper footballs and Mm -hmm. and all of that that i'm not sure we uh have the same oh there's still paper footballs in high school okay as long (laughs) as all right good to know kids haven't changed that much I think Josh kind of mentioned this earlier, too, with Mr. Vernon. He's mean. He's really, really, really mean. I think it's probably true, Josh, that there are teachers out there who think that, you know, kids are getting worse and worse and worse, more and more disrespectful and lazy, when really it's them who's changing. They're getting older and they're they're less tolerant of it. 
I think that's probably true. But this guy is just, he takes it to a new level. I mean, it wouldn't pass today to have a depiction of a teacher downright abusive. So I almost think you'd have to change that role entirely. And maybe the way I see it going down is kind of the, he or she would have to be kind of a little bit of the comedic effect in a misguided but well-meaning and maybe pretty oblivious counselor or teacher who's kind of trying to trying to steer the kids straight and make them see the error of their ways but it just ends up being out of touch and unrelatable for the kids and it kind of then is something to make fun of for them Mm -hmm. Um, because I just don't think you could get away with such a mean teacher in the original movie he's the chance we, we get to see at the beginning of the movie all of the uh relationships between the students and the parents except for john who just mm-hmm. comes in his own so that exchange with them in the closet there is the time where we get to see as an audience how john is being abused we get the story mm. about the cigarettes but you know we also are on the fence as how a reliable a narrator john is throughout the movie mm-hmm. So we really get to drive home this thing that he is a bully because he's being bullied. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a powerful message today. I mean, there's obviously a lot of attention on bullying in schools and how do we stop it? So I think there's probably a lot of effectual dialogue and conversation you could have there in a a movie made today. Yeah. And there's a number of topics like that that this movie is able to treat really lightly then I'm not sure it would be able to treat so lightly mm-hmm. if made today. You know, we get into things about bullying, downright abuse, uh, some serious mental illness issues, um, probably some date rape issues. Like it touches on a number of things, and uh, I'm not sure it would be as palatable to treat those things so lightly yeah. today without kind of a really careful attention or condemnation of some of those things. That's a tricky line to walk, too, because the movie is funny, and it's supposed to be funny, and I think you need it to be funny because Mm -hmm. some of these issues are so heavy. You know, maybe it says something about, well, I know it says something about us that we treat horrible things with humor because it's easier to digest then, right? It makes it more palatable, and somehow it allows us to process, Um, and I think that's probably just people. That's just how we do. But yeah, I think you'd have to really walk a fine line of, We want to say something with this movie. We want to make a point. We want to help people. But it still needs to be fun and lighthearted and kind of silly. I think that kind of segues into kind of the way that I approached this topic was um, on the production side, what would a production of this type of movie look like today? And I kind of already talked about, you know, would it be something with a bigger budget? Would we keep this, try and keep this indie feel that the original one has? Just a, a recap, the original movie starred Molly Ringwald, who is best known for her role really just in The Facts of Life and then in 16 Candles. So Anthony Michael Hall was just coming off of the Hughes written comedy National Lampoon's Vacation. He was young Rusty Griswold, the first of many Rusty Griswolds in that series, kind of an ever changing cast. <laughs> yes, it doesn't cast. matter. Yeah. It can be whoever we want it to be. Emilio Estevez, he is another Brat Pack alum of that time, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, future District 5 Pee Wee hockey coach. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. I forgot about that. Yeah. Ali Sheedy, who uh, lost. The star of the movie, let's just be real. <laughs> She actually lost the part of Sam in 16 Candles to Molly Ringwald. Mm, I can see that. And Judd Nelson, who beat out both John Cusick and Nicolas Cage for the role of John. 
Can you imagine Nicolas Cage Whoa. in this movie? I would never watch it. It would be the worst. I really think we dodged a Nicolas Cage-shaped bullet. bullet there. Big, faceless bullet. As Bryce mentioned, it's a rated R film, and I think we could make this one PG-13. Really, the only thing that was rated R for was the swearing, and even Roger Ebert, film critic, said in his review of the movie that it should have been rated PG-13, and he thought that it could be handled by thoughtful teenagers. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, give this a PG-13 rating, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a there's a lot of f bombs though, and I think that isn't that part of the rating system. How many how many f bombs you can fit in? It is. (laughs) But that was something that Hannah and I talked about, actually. Like, this is a curious rated R film. And I think it is, yeah, just because it scored a little too high on the F-ometer. And it kind of exposes the weird relationship we have with language versus violence in films. But yeah, so I agree. You could probably, this would be a pretty easy PG-13 film to make. I approached it as this is not a remake, but rather a script that was written for the first time in the 21st century with 21st century students in a 21st century world and the best 21st century director writer director for me i thought would be john watts and this is the guy who directed spider-man homecoming this year oh and he's only directed two other movies indie films before spider-man and i thought i mean he just kind of captured being a kid today in yeah. spider-man so Definitely. well with peter parker and all of the high school students both male and female and the female characters are so important in this movie yeah. too that absolutely we wouldn't want to give them short shrift One other thing that I was thinking of is the original movie doesn't get political at all. And I think that's one thing, Bryce, you were talking about how we would keep kind of these character tropes the same or these character stereotypes. But I think uh, it would be a disservice if we didn't throw in a little politics because I think students today are much more politically aware than they were 30 years ago. And so that's something that I think could be represented in this movie of having students who represent kind of both a more left and a more right ideology. Especially ones who come from households where their parents are really invested Mm -hmm. in such ideologies, Mm -hmm. which I think can manifest itself actually in similar negative ways. And so here's my kind of fan casting, my fantasy draft casting. Oh boy. Of the students. I was going to ask this question for Josh because I knew he'd have thoughts. So for the brain, we'll start off with Brian the Brain. And I picked Finn Wolfhard, who was both in Stranger Things and It. Yep, I can see it. I thought that he's got that kind of nerdy, awkward side in Stranger Things, Definitely. but he also knows how to give it back to people and it. He's He's got that wit. And so I was thinking instead of John and Andy wrestling on the ground, as it happens in Breakfast Club, uh, instead it could now be John and Brian who get into a verbal match. Ah. Oh, yeah. And Brian outwitting John at everybody to kind of take him down a notch rather than Andy tackling him. Yeah. Sure. And I dig that because physical violence, let's just, let's not condone that as a way to solve problems. <laughs> the athlete, I casted Laura Harrier. Uh, and so I made it a girl. Uh, so it could be Andrea the athlete instead of Andy the athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, I don't know who that is. Well, she played Peter Parker's love interest, Liz, on Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, okay. So she's worked with Watts before. But I almost didn't pick her because I found out that she's actually 27 years old. Whoa. What? Yeah. But I mean, I couldn't tell at all in Spider-Man. No. But uh, so she could probably p- play a, a senior athlete again. Mm-hmm. I think her act of bullying could then be cyber bullying within the uh, uh yeah. 
locker rooms there, and that could be why she's in detention. Because sure. taping someone's butt cheeks together just doesn't quite have the same same implications today. I don't. It doesn't doesn't hold up as a, a bullying tactic. Yeah, there are some I think interesting shifts there between the the nature of bullying, yeah. from maybe more physical manifestations to cybernetic mm-hmm. manifestations. I think too, um, there'd be some updating of the the insults. Oh, for I've, sure. I just had such a hard time seeing a student say "eat my shorts." <laughs> the princess I casted Sophia Lillis, and she was Beverly Marsh in the new It movie. And I haven't seen it. Okay, sorry. she's a redhead, just like Molly Ringwald, uh, and they look actually quite similar when put side to side. Oh wow, she does Believe look that. bigger. Um, but more than that, more than that, she has. I think she has the emotional acting chops, and I think a princess would be a different role for her because she was more kind of a homebody, part of the losers club in it, so give her something that's similar yet different. I was thinking maybe if we were playing this movie in the Midwest, she could maybe be the girl from from the coast who's popular because everybody's obsessed with her because she's new and different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe her parents are already divorced, and that's why she was dragged out to the Midwest by one of them, Mm. and so I think she could fill those shoes uh, or those Ugg boots, as, as Hannah said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and puffy vest. And puffy vest, yeah. The criminal, this was the hardest one for me to pick because I wanted somebody who looks physically intimidating. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up picking Will Poulter. And he's known for being in the comedy We Are the Millers with Jennifer Aniston and Jason Sudeikis. He was also in The mm-hmm. Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, yeah. So I think he's got uh, an intimidating build and an intimidating look to him. I I also kind of saw him as a more racist criminal or bully than even really he knows. Mm. This is kind of the guy Mm. that I took as kind of your stereotypical redneck almost. Sure. It's not all his fault and i think it's the who raised him and where he was raised and the way that he was raised so on many levels he doesn't know that he doesn't know what he's doing Mm -hmm. is wrong but he still knows that he's hurting people kind of out of ignorance and fear and i kind of think that's a much scarier bully sure that's a good point more of kind of a a world's colliding kind of thing yeah maybe even a little more subtle type of bullying or mean person Mm mm-hmm I would cast Millie Bobby Brown as the basket mm. case. You would. Uh, oh. Yeah, that could work. I think, yeah, she could definitely do it. I'd almost be She has the chops. Well, yeah, she could, sure. she could absolutely do it. I, I tried not to put her here. I almost thought it was a little bit of typecasting that she's kind of this homebody on the show that nobody gets, and then now you put her in this role. But I just think that she does it so well. When I, I think thought too, about the oh, go ahead. This role doesn't have to necessarily be the homebody type. You know, I think Ali Sheedy just plays it so weird. She's just mm-hmm. so funny, and her facial expressions are so good. And so it would almost be a branch out for Millie Bobby Brown just because Eleven is so serious. But I think this role of the basket case could be a little more fun and a little more fanciful, perhaps. Yeah, I thought that you know, in Stranger Things, she's really good at going from one thing to another. She's one way when she's, but then she completely flips when she has to. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get that sense from Allison in the movie, too, is she's kind of this one way, but then when she opens up, she's actually an awesome character, right? Yeah. Right, right. I just want to see Eleven eating a Captain Crunch and Pixie Six sandwich. <laughs> 
Maybe maybe they could nod to Stranger Things and the bread could be two eggs. Ego waffles. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I I think I don't I don't I w- don't take serious issue with any of those casting no, choices. No, I think those are great think. choices. This is why we have Josh on the the movie podcast cuz he knows movies. The better question <laughs> is why does Josh have us on the movie podcast? Well, I think you guys add a lot to the story. So what uh what kind of changes or evolutions were you guys thinking of that the characters go or or uh, do one of my big questions as i looked at this what is would the nature of this conflict with authority change if the movie were made today because that's what uh, kind of one of the big themes throughout this movie is this conflict with kind of a largely unjust authority in ways from above between these kids and the assistant principal between them and their parents and i think that obviously the conflict between children and parents i think is kind of everlasting across the the generations but i think you know as you mentioned josh and engaging maybe some more political themes in this movie kind of the way that uh, manifests itself might look a little different and i haven't put my finger on exactly what that would be but I think it might kind of the kind of moral authority of the students might come less from that kind of individual person centric kind of space of, you know, I am my own thing. I don't have to become you and perhaps more of a, um, a collective kind of more justice focused space and looking at not necessarily these individual to individual conflicts, but these group to group conflicts. I think some of those are maybe more um, salient issues right now. Um, than they necessarily were for Generation X. And I'm, like I said, I haven't put my finger on exactly what that looks like, but I think the nature of that conflict would have to be different somewhat. I think there's kind of some thought that the generation in high school now is, like you were saying, a little less me-centric. They actually, they're thinking about the larger, the world at large and how actions today influence people down the line, which, I mean, for high school and college age kids, like that's a it's kind of a big deal for mm-hmm. them to be thinking that way. And I think there is some room to grow there that kind of viewing the older generation as as having made things harder on the current generation, maybe unknowingly, and and kind of fighting against that, you know, this this idea that it's it's not just about us, it's about this larger world and you're kind of holding us back from actually reaching potential to help people. Yeah, and so I think maybe you'd have the students kind of looking at the adult authority figures in their life, not necessarily just saying, you don't believe in me or you think that I'm not going to turn into anything, but rather looking at them and saying, you have screwed stuff up for us. Um, yeah, kind of this larger indictment of what they've done to the system. And I think we'd probably more aggressively engage some of current questions we have about college costs and um, even, you know, without making it a numbers or policy movie, you know, even some economic questions. Um, and so I can see a modern version of this movie engaging more on the adult side and not necessarily in a, um, a very positive way for them because i think these issues we might look at them as as more intertwined like you said josh that i think and i think what this movie does really well is get into very much the high school world where very small things are just world shaking one of the later scenes in the movie where they're just sitting in a circle and, and bearing their hearts on, like on the one hand you look at that and you're like oh why you know why are they suddenly crying about these things like it's not that but then i reflect to my high school time and i'm like yep that's spot on 
these things that objectively in the the grand scheme of things don't matter that much are just earth shattering. But I think in a modern interpretation of this movie, I think you it would that would bleed out a little bit more rather than these very isolated um, within the within the youth issues. Uh, you'd see something that's a bit more of a cr- critique of systemic issues. And I, I think it does as it stands now. It kind of just, you know, maybe the issues aren't super important or world shattering, but it does kind of pull you back to that time and kind of make you reflect. And yeah, I, they just hit it spot on what it's like to be in high school mm-hmm. and this this kind of just so everything's a disaster all the time. I almost wonder if that would be harder to capture if you're focusing on bigger issues. I, I don't know, maybe not. And it, it'd have to be artfully done. And that's why I don't write movies. But I think there's a lot of potential for the movie to really say something about high school generation now. Yeah, you were talking about um, what the older generation's put upon the students now and put on their shoulders and i think the original movie just touches on it in the briefest of ways when claire says to brian you know i probably won't say hi to you Mm. in the hallways Mm -hmm. on monday because that is what the system has Mm -hmm. deemed uh, acceptable and status quo for our cliques in school. And maybe that's something that, you know, that they could touch on is is this older generation and these students before them, you know, it's always been the same way. Like you can't intermingle cliques or groups or anything like that. And so I think they touch on it briefly, but that could be something that could be explored more in an mm-hmm. update. You know, and I could potentially see in a, a modern version of this film, kind of your primary antagonist, instead of being the assistant principal or someone within the school system, it actually being um, a parent, maybe someone who's very forceful on the school board or something that, you know, we see talking to the principal mm-hmm. in several ways. And I can see an actual kind of yoking together of this assistant principal and the students in their different but related plights potentially being in positions that others in society as a whole don't value highly and are not kind of properly rewarded or recognized for what they're doing and so again i can potentially see kind of a a zooming out to engage some of these larger issues Mm -hmm. and i wonder too who would both i know if you thought about a casting josh or just how that role would change but of our wise janitor oh yeah because he's actually one of my favorite characters in the movie (laughs) yeah first you mentioned school boards and when i was researching last night i came across this quote and i'll I'll say it now since you mentioned it it comes from mark twain so you know it's going to be sassy and salty (laughs) sassy mark twain uh he said in the first place god made idiots that was for practice then he made school boards Ooh, ouch (laughs) uh maybe that could be the quote at the very beginning of the the beginning oh sure yep i could see that yeah and it would have to be followed by the really cheesy screen explosion and glass breaking sound yeah when I was thinking about the assistant principal and the janitor, I kind of thought that their roles should be cut down, to be honest. Mm. Oh, really? Uh, their chat in the basement, I, I thought it's just kind of, it was too fleeting. Like, they talked for like five minutes, not even two minutes, and it didn't really have any bearing on the students at all. And so I think just their interactions with the students going in and out of the library carried more weight than their actual conversation with each other. Sure. I did find myself hoping they'd return to that scene like i've I've seen the movie before so i probably should have remembered that it doesn't but i almost expected to start checking in with them every now and then kind of like we had been doing 
with the students, hmm. uh, but we didn't. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting, like Carl points out, the kids haven't changed, man. It's you. You've changed. It's not the kids. Um, but it doesn't really seem to have an impact on Vernon. He just sort of continues to be a jerk butt, which... And we don't really see I him I guess again. we don't really see, but I would... I assume he's still just as mean and nasty. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think potentially cutting back those those times where it doesn't really have any bearing on the story or the main characters gives you a little more room to to deal with the main characters. I think you also have to change or maybe entirely get rid of the two hookups at the end of the movie. Andy and Allison doesn't bother me quite as much because they're kind of decent people but I think that moment where Brian asks like are we friends after today and Claire just downright says no I think that's a really powerful part of the movie mm-hmm. and so maybe you like Josh said kind of work through that some more and that's where you end is more with them trying to be friends the next time they see each other or at least vowing to be nice or you know something like that instead of these weird little hookups Andy and Allison did bother me um, because it's kind of the, uh, I guess by now it's a cliche. Maybe it hasn't always been, but it's like, ah, you got a makeover. Now you're beautiful. Now you're lovable. <laughs> right. I couldn't see your face before. So you were ugly. Right. <laughs> and that Allison, and that's okay with Alice, Allison. Yeah. Like she's just like, oh yes, I will. I will receive this attention from you now. The fact that I didn't merit it before in no way bothers me. Right. I, yeah. Mm. I would, I would hope that a, a movie made today would not uh, go those routes yeah and i mean part of that is still kind of high school though right oh the boy is paying attention to me and it feels good when you're 15 but uh i don't know just a little too easy maybe mm-hmm. except for poor brian brian just was well, like got nobody that was one thing that struck me like after all this brian still gets his jollies off of writing an essay I guess I do love him punching himself in the arm. <laughs> it's my favorite part. Mm. Although, and again, one of those things that the movie treats very lightly that I don't think you could know. Brian brought a gun to school, right? Like, oh kids should gosh. not be in attention detention. Uh, kids should be getting some, some mental health, even if it is a flare gun. Flare guns are very dangerous. Any sort of gun, anything, and he's just suspended. There's no detention right. in this sort of post-Columbine world. And so, right. uh, yeah, something else would have to be done for, for his impetus into detention. Maybe yeah. he just goes in and smashes everybody else's lamps or, you know. Right. Or, or, know. Yeah, I think you really have to pull it back. It might, so. might be that he brings a knife to school right. or that a gun is found in his car. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think it... Finding a gun in a kid's locker is not a, a a realistic way to put them in this situation in a modern interpretation. Can you imagine giving a kid just one Saturday detention for bringing a weapon to school? It just, I mean, it just wouldn't happen, and it honestly shouldn't happen. I mean, that's really an underreaction to the problem. Unless, you know, if you if we do cast the new movie as engaging larger themes, you know, if we t- make this underreaction to gun violence a political statement, like that's something the movie could do. If the movie wants to engage that many issues, I don't know. Uh, but Maybe you could, have too much going on. Right. Then. But you could do that. And I could see how you could do that pretty crisply 
just in a, a couple lines of dialogue. Like if you have a character, we're not even gonna react, right? Or well, even if you have a character point out, like just the fact that this does seem like a gross underreaction, and then just let that let, let that set. You kind of have to rethink entirely why they're in detention. And the cyberbullying thing, I think, is a great route to go with mm-hmm. the princess care or the athlete character because that's a it's a real thing. It really happens, and exactly why someone would end up in detention. I think for me, one of maybe the key takeaways is that in a modern reimagining of this movie, the themes that the movie engages are perhaps larger, but the um, issues that the characters are struggling with as presented in the movie are perhaps smaller. Yeah. So using smaller character experiences as ways to engage larger issues. Mm-hmm. I think that's a significant part of what a reimagining of this movie looks like to me. I would agree there. You have to keep it because no high school kid is going to talk about, you know, the world at large mm-hmm. for extended periods of time. Even though they might be more aware than high school kids 30 years ago, I think they're still pretty me focused because that's how their brains are working right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think you still have to keep the the personal issues very small or relatable for high school kids, but they can kind of be representative of these larger issues that we want to address. Well, I got to say, this was a tougher question than I thought it would be. And I think it's simply because the movie is kind of perfect as it stands. And it's hard to imagine it existing in any other form. But I think we got some really good answers here of some awesome casting and directing options by Josh and kind of the production side. And then kind of these, you know, exploring larger themes that that maybe kids today are a little more in tune with than kids, kids 30 years ago while still kind of keeping it light and fun um, and getting some of that humor and and weirdness because it is just a weird movie. But yeah, well, kind of kind of addressing these larger world and current events. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's always dangerous for people like us to take a movie like this that is so prized and so revered and to uh, critique it and propose changes. And so I'm sure probably a lot of you agree with us because our thoughts have been brilliant. Uh, but many of you probably disagree with us too. So we're, I'd say we're really curious about what you think as well, you know, both the casting decisions and some of the, the themes and ch- ways that this movie would change. So by all means, uh, you can let us know on... On Twitter, you can reach us at whatifmoviepod or on facebook.com slash whatifmoviepod. We'd love to hear uh, what you have to say, uh, both in response to our suggestions and, you know, what you would do on your own if given the chance to answer the question, what if the Breakfast Club were made today? Right, and I think next time Josh is going to be our host. Mm -hmm. And Josh, what are we talking about next time? What if you're Hugh Jackman's character in Prisoners? What if I personally, me, Hannah McNeely, Tellman, is the character? Are you hyphenating your name now? I don't know. Okay. It just came out. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that idea, though, of like, what would you do in this situation? Yeah. I re- dig that. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. All right. So join us for that podcast where <laughs> we'll be answering <laughs> that question. Uh, until then, I'm Bryce. I'm Hannah. And I'm Josh. And this is the What If Movie Pod. Bye. Bye.